Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of No Rain Date, your podcast for local news and interviews. I'm your host, Josh Popachak. I'm also the publisher of Sock and Source. And these are the headlines for the week ending February 27th, 2021. It's hard to believe, but February is almost over. And by the time you're listening to this, it very well could be March already. That means the weather is changing, and for many people, that means it's changing for the better. We've been seeing warmer air this week, although we did have a bit of snow to start the week, and there's still a lingering possibility of some as I record this. But overall, it looks like things are warming up quite substantially. I was looking at some long-term forecasts from NOAA and other sources for March and beyond, And they all pretty much seem to agree that things are going to go from colder and snowier than normal to actually warmer than normal, at least at some point in March and then into April and May. So if you're a fan of the warm weather, that is something to be excited about. It it could mean that spring will arrive a bit earlier. Obviously, February has been a very snowy month overall with at least probably four or five maybe snow and or ice events and we still have quite a bit of snow on the ground although as I mentioned due to highs in the 40s and approaching 50 this week a lot of it has been melting that's been helping our public works departments who have continued to work on snow removal in places like Fountain Hill. I was a witness to it. I had a front row seat for the snow removal operations of the Fountain Hill Public Works Department on my street the other day, and it it was pretty cool to watch. They had a three-man crew out with a dump truck, a front-end loader, and a skid steer, and they were going to town on the snow piles, which aren't melting as fast, obviously, as snow in your yard or on your roof because the snow in those piles has been compacted. So even with the warm weather, It can take quite a while for them to actually disappear and in places like Fountain Hill where public parking is at a premium, many people depend on street parking, it does help a lot when the crews get out and go block by block and are able to free up some parking spaces by removing those huge piles. They weren't able to get to all of them because there were some cars still parked on the street that's something that you can't really uh, totally eliminate, but it, it still was a big improvement, and we certainly appreciate their efforts. Same thing has been done in Hellertown all the way up and down Main Street. If you regularly park on Main Street in Hellertown to do business or because you live there, you know it helps a lot. So that's exciting. As I mentioned, we did have some snow earlier in the week on Monday, February 21st, or 22nd rather, and it was kind of in a burst. It was a wet snow and uh, did make for some difficult driving conditions while it was coming down. Saucon Valley students actually had school that day. A lot of districts opted to keep kids home and have a traditional snow day or have them have what they call now, I guess, a virtual snow day where they stay at home because of the weather, but they still have class online. Saucon Valley didn't either, and obviously there's a judgment call involved in that. My understanding is that the district does not want to have virtual snow days. They want to preserve the idea of a snow day as something sort of special that you know allows kids to get out and enjoy the snow but they didn't have that anyway so perhaps that's due to the fact that they've already used 
a number of them and don't want to have to have kids go to school into the summer or change the you know calendar in, in other ways it's difficult to say what factors go into these decisions and obviously they are difficult decisions however in this case uh, it did seem like there were maybe some issues there were some issues with transportation uh, on the way home I know uh, at least two of the school buses could not get to all the stops that are on their regular routes and that required parents at the last minute to come pick up their kids at either the middle school or the high school. So obviously that's not ideal and we want everybody to be safe and make the best decisions possible for everybody's safety without too much weight given to the, you know, the complexities of the situation that we're in. Obviously with COVID, many people have attached different ideologies to things like going to class online. I think that's unfortunate if if that's the case in any case. But as I said, we're coming to the end of the winter season. So hopefully we won't have too many more days where that's even potentially an issue and the administrators are forced to make a decision, which traditionally, no matter what they decide, you know, it's not going to make everybody happy. They know that. I think everybody in the community knows that. And it's easy to play uh, armchair quarterback with these decisions. But I have witnessed many of them and just uh, have a genuine interest in keeping everybody safe and doing what's best for the students and the local families. In COVID-related news, which I just mentioned, St. Luke's had a big announcement this week that they treated their 1,000th COVID-19 patient with monoclonal antibody therapy. Essentially, what this therapy does is take antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients and put them into the bodies of current COVID-19 patients to sort of give them a boost as they try to fight off the infection. And it's a therapy that seems to work really well in a majority of, of people. St. Luke's has been using it since around November. So they've been using it quite a bit and in a number of their hospitals. They note in their in their news release about it that it really has benefited the community as a whole because every time you get somebody recovered from COVID-19 and on the mend, it, it takes some of the pressure off all these systems that have been working, you know, at full throttle, trying to keep things going. And, and that, that goes for our healthcare workers, too. So that's exciting. St. Luke's also announced that they are expediting access for teachers, local public school teachers, I imagine private school as well. It wasn't really specified, but in other words, the gist of this is that if you are a teacher who qualifies based on either your age, which would be 65 or over, probably not too many of those teachers, or if you have a pre-existing condition and there's a long list of them, you could be getting expedited access to appointments for the COVID vaccine. So obviously that's good news if you are a teacher that falls into that category, but you have to note that it's not expedited access for all teachers. If you're like a young 25-year-old teacher who's perfectly healthy, um, you're still going to have to wait until the next phase of the rollout in Pennsylvania. And it's difficult to say when that will begin. There have been issues with the rollout so far, obviously. We recently reported on the shortage of Moderna vaccine because of basically a clerical-type error with the inventory management, where doses that were supposed to be reserved for second doses were being given out to patients as first doses. So that means that there aren't enough second doses of that vaccine delaying uh, appointments for some people who have them scheduled for a second dose of the Moderna vaccine. It doesn't seem like that's causing any type of snowball effect, at least. We haven't heard about that, if that's the case. 
other than that, things are chugging along and progress is, is obviously being made every day, not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout the United States. I believe as of today, which is February 26th, something like four, four to five percent of the country is fully vaccinated and 12 to 13 percent has had at least one dose. So obviously there's a long way to go and it won't be probably until late spring or early summer when there's something close to a full vaccination or as close as we're going to get. But any kind of progress at this point will take it. It's been almost exactly a year since everything sort of started to go sideways. I remember it was early March of 2020 when you started to go to the supermarket and saw the long lines. You couldn't find toilet paper. All of a sudden you can find hand sanitizer and things just rapidly spiraled from there. I believe my first article about COVID-19 on Sock and Source was on February 29th, 2020. So it is almost exactly a year. What a year it has been. There hasn't been a lot of time to reflect on, on everything that's happened, obviously. And hopefully once things evolve to a period of more stability, we can do that because I think that will be very useful for everybody's you know, mental health and also so we can help prevent things like this from happening in the future. Everybody needs to take time to think about their choices and, and hopefully people have been making good choices. Certainly as a publisher, I want to try and put things into context for people. We may do that, you know, with the one year anniversary. We may sort of do do a little bit of a retrospective looking back on, on how things have changed in the last 12 months. One of the things that, you know, is interesting, and I hear it all the time, and I'm guilty of saying this too, everybody says when things get back to normal or when we return to normal. I mean, it's human nature to express something like that, but the reality, I think, is that whatever we go back to it won't be the same, obviously. Too many things have changed. Half a million people have died from COVID-19 in the last year. So you can't, you can't go home again in that sense. Obviously, I think a lot of people realize that on some level, but it's hard to accept that in a way. But we have to, and ultimately we'll be better for it if we do, because we can create a new normal that's maybe better than what the normal was before the pandemic. That's certainly, I think, a, an admirable goal and a good way to approach this next phase of the evolution of our post-COVID society. So, I mean, there's no, n- not a lot of good that's going to come from grieving over what was lost. Obviously, the people that have been lost cannot be replaced. We should focus on honoring their memories and ensuring that these deaths, all these deaths were not in vain by taking steps to, you know, reduce future risks. And I'm certainly not the expert on, on everything that needs to happen to do that. That's why we have powerful people in our government who are hopefully focused on the best interests of, of our country. As a journalist, we're here to keep tabs on what they're doing, and we're going to continue to do that and report it back to you. In other news, we shared an announcement this week by a former Bethlehem police officer, Van Scott Sr., who is running for district judge for the district that covers West Bethlehem and Fountain Hill Borough. This judgeship was last held by District Judge Wayne Mora, who passed away unexpectedly in November. That's left the seat open, and we will be having an interview with another candidate for this judgeship. Amy Zanelli, who is a Lehigh County Commissioner, we'll be talking to her in a little bit, but we wanted to obviously highlight another candidate that's in the race. There could still be others. The filing deadline is in March, 
So anybody that is seeking that seat, we certainly extend the invitation to come on No Rain Date and talk about your candidacy. We hope to welcome Mr. Scott on a future episode. Obviously, it's an important role that represents justice at a community level. We don't always think about the district judge that way, but that's really what it is. And so uh, accessibility to the court is very important. That's been difficult in the past year due to COVID-19. What can be done to make it better in the future? Those are the kinds of issues we hope to explore, and, and we'll be talking to Amy Zanelli about that as well. In police news, we had several reports out of Milford Township in Upper Bucks County regarding scam-type incidents. One incident, which we reported this week, a man from Milford Township thought he was buying a classic car from somebody online, and he ended up losing nearly $30,000 to this fraudulent activity. That's a lot of money. So if you know somebody who is spending time online and shopping for something like that, you might want to uh, pass on a word of warning because these scam artists are very good at what they do. They are relentless. So it could happen to just about anybody. In another case, also in Milford Township, there was a distraction burglary. An 87-year-old female resident of the township was approached by three men who called on her home and claimed to be part of a quote-unquote water testing crew, that they were in the area visiting neighbors to test the quality of their water. She allowed them in the house while she was distracted. Her belongings were rifled through. After they left, she discovered she had been robbed. And this is a scam, or rather a type of criminal behavior that has been going on for a long time, but it bears repeating, you know, that you should make your loved ones aware of this when it happens close to home, especially, because I think due to the pandemic, certainly the economic consequences of it, more people may be resorting to criminal-type behavior, and other people are more vulnerable for various reasons. They're more isolated from loved ones. They're not having the contact face-to-face that they would normally have And that affects your thinking, your ability to reason, too. So it's sort of like a perfect storm, in a way, for uh, crimes of this nature to occur. We think it's important to spread the news of them when they happen close to home. And we hope you'll do your part when you see our stories by sharing them on Facebook, Twitter, email, however you choose to, to share them. But it's important to help get the word out, and we'll continue to do that. And those are the headlines for the week ending February 27th, 2021. We'll be back with you in early March to talk about the latest news then. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service. And we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money. And that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source. And we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community, and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. 
These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. It's my pleasure this week on No Rain Day to welcome somebody who is a public servant and elected official in Lehigh County, and she also happens to be a fellow Fountain Hill resident, Amy Zanelli. Amy is going to share with us some exciting news about her candidacy for a district judgeship. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Thank you again. Yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I want to start off by, you know, going back and sort of having you talk a little bit about your personal history, your professional history. You have been in the public eye for the last few years as a member of the Lehigh County Board of Commissioners and participated in many initiatives as a result of that. And I want to touch on some of those in a little bit. But what was your interest, you know, going back a few years in in terms of high school and then in college and, and what led you to this path of public service? All right. Well, so after college graduation, I fell into some social work and family counseling and my ability to see things others didn't led me to go into investigative work at the state level for the state of New Jersey. And I specialize in sex crimes and homicide, abuse and neglect for children, child victims under the age of nine. Hmm. And I did that for quite a long time. And when I was ready to have my own children, I decided to move, which is natural for anyone in that line of work because not only are you a target, for perpetrators, but your children become targets. So I decided to move, and I decided to move here to the Lehigh Valley. Specifically, I moved to West Bethlehem just because I loved it. I didn't come across in my travels any other place where you could sit around, throw a rock, and in 20 minutes either hit a dairy farm or a city. Hmm. And you can do that here. And I, I just thought it would be such a beautiful place to raise my family. So that's why I came here to the valley. I had my children, and then as my children all reached school age, it was time to get back into politics, because while I was an investigator, I was a union shop steward, which was politically involved, and I thought it was time to get back, and that was right in 2017, and that's when I ran for my first office, which was Lehigh County Commissioner. Wonderful, and, and obviously you, you won that race and you have been making an impact since then. One of the things I know that you have made a priority is funding for substance abuse recovery centers in the area. Why has that been important to you to do that? Well, when I decided I was gonna run, I sat down with the community members from all over my district to see what we needed. And that was one need that that rang true everywhere we went. Now, unlike Northampton County, that I believe at this point has five recovery centers, Lehigh had none. But we had just as many overdose and deaths after meeting with the coroner from opioid abuse, amongst other things. But opioid abuse was something particularly hitting this community very hard. And so I wanted to take that mantle up, which was Difficult for me at first because I didn't have any kind of family connection to get myself into the recovery community, but I was able to earn the trust of some people that had had journeys down that road. And so they were able to get me to meet with the right people, the people that organized Valley in the Valley, for instance, to really kind of understand the plight of what was going on so that I could take it up. And I decided that it was absolutely something we needed to prioritize. Now, unfortunately, even after I won the election, I realized that I could not fulfill that promise uh, with the board that existed. And that is when I decided, I think I was, wow, maybe maybe three months into my first year when I decided I needed to flip the board, which was 
you know, flip the majority from from one party to the other and extradite some of the sitting members to get new, more open-minded members that would be willing to fund such things. We're able to do that. We did that successfully in 2019. My new board was sworn in in 2020, and I was able to gavel down that year with being able to provide grant funds for one youth recovery center and two adult recovery centers. Did you have support like from the the district attorney's office or anything for Lehigh County with that? Because I would think that would be kind of logical with the number of crimes related to drugs that occur. You would think recovery centers would help reduce the crime, right? Yes, our DA was open to the idea of supporting it, but it had to be something that the commissioners really control the budget. So if we're going to add something to a budget line, or if we're going to award grant funds, which was the more appropriate way to go, it's something that board has to approve. And, and there was no getting that done with the board that we had. Right. So I flipped it. <laughs> and I was happy because that was actually the last of all the promises I put on my palm card. We all see those, right? The politicians that make all these promises. That was the final one, and I was able to make them all, and that's why I decided at the end of that year when the late Judge Moore passed that I could successfully leave the board in the hands of its new commissioners that we got elected because I had done everything I set out to do and I could move on to the next leg of my journey here to try to make a difference in the Valley. Right. And I do want to point out that when you're saying you flipped it, I mean, you are a Democrat, you were elected to the board as a Democrat, but in terms of your next stage or your your candidacy for district judge, as you mentioned, to fill the seat held by the late Mr. Maurer, that's not going to be a partisan um, endeavor on your part. And can you explain how that how that is? No, not at all. A judgeship is not a partisan position. Yes, I did run as a Democrat. I am a registered Democrat. But no, the judge in and of itself is not a partisan position, much like your school board candidates are not to be partisan. We have the ability to file on both sides of the ballot. We can file as a Republican and we can file as a Democrat. And that is what I'm going to do because it doesn't matter to me what party you come from. You're going to be treated the same way in my courtroom. Everyone is going to be treated fairly and equally. You know, the, I guess a good way to say it is the law is black and white, but I promise to apply it to all colors equally. And that's one of those things where we hear a lot of talk in the Democratic Party about, you know, criminal justice reform, right? Bail reform and equity and all these things. But especially in Pennsylvania, you know, we're a complicated commonwealth. There are a lot of things that you can't affect in a legislative matter. And one of those is how judges decide to rule. And if you want to make sure that everyone is treated equally and fairly by a judge with the amount of independence that they, they really have, the amount of autonomy your local magistrates have, the only way to make that change is to instill people that will rule that way. And I'm going to be one of those people. I certainly applaud you for that, and and I think that that should be the goal of of every judge. I think I can understand why some people might be confused about partisanship within the courts just because of everything that's happened, especially in the last year, with the politicization of things like the election and it going into the courts. And I think for our Supreme Court justices, too, when they run, aren't they running as Democrats or Republicans. So it's it's kind of a weird system, I guess, where, oh. sorry. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, you can run any way you want. For instance, the late Judge Mora, because of the makeup of our district, right? So our district is Fountain Hill and West Bethlehem for this court. It's, at this point, over 75% Democrat to 25% Republican. So most people... Don't even bother to cross file here. Mm. The only Judge Moore didn't last time he ran either. 
I'm doing it on principle, not because it's really required. I'm doing it because I want to show up. I'm knocking on every single car door myself. I'm coming out to say, yes, I know that you think you might know me, but I'm going to show you a new side of me and let you know that I'm going to show up for you and will just as fairly for you as I am for anybody else. And it's important. Also, what's interesting to note here is we are a little backed up in Lehigh County. Let's be real honest. Our courts are backed up almost two years in some areas. And if I can manage to win both sides of the ticket, right, if I can win the primary on both the Republican side and on the Democratic side, then there is an option to petition the governor to seat me early, and that would let me then address the backlog faster. Because that's something that I want to do. I want to have a full-time court. I want to take advantage of my night court hours and actually schedule cases during those times so that I can get us up to where we need to be, right? Because we had a backlog before COVID, and Uh we had a backlog before the Honorable Mora passed. So that backlog has only increased, and it's time somebody gets in there and gets to work. Right. Well, justice delayed is justice denied, as they say, and and that that's that has a lot of truth. It's very it. true. Yeah, and I did not know about that option, which sounds like it would make a lot of sense in this case to whoever, if if somebody should win both primaries. And as you said, the district is sort of lopsided in terms of voter registration. And that's a big difference from some other districts around here. I'm thinking of like Hellertown, Lower Saucon, of course, much more evenly divided in terms of the parties. So probably cross-filing here would be more of a necessity. And, yeah. and I do remember that, that that was the case the last time we had a competitive election. I think all four or five candidates were cross-filed. But yeah, so that's, I was not aware of, of such a, a backlog of cases, but certainly I would think that that, that will be a priority um, for whoever, whoever gets in there. And you mentioned, you know, being a full-time judge, I think many people aren't aware that not all district judges make it their full-time job and they don't have to under the current system that we have in Pennsylvania. This has come up many times over the years. There was an article last year, late last year in the Philadelphia Inquirer in which they examined the wide variances in the number of hours judges choose to work throughout the state and some, you know, maintain law practices outside of their courtrooms. And do you think that that has a detrimental effect on justice in the Commonwealth overall? I mean, do you think it should be uh, mandatory that it's a full-time position? Well, unfortunately, I am not permitted to take sides of, of issues at this time. But what I can say is that there are definitely some drawbacks to magistrates and other judges being able to have so much autonomy to decide their schedules because you are correct. There are, there's no real regulation to determine whether or not someone puts in five hours a week or 40. There's very little regulation at all. And because of how little regulation there is, it really does come down to who you install as judge and how much faith you have in them to do the right thing. Pennsylvania also is unique in that, so Pennsylvania, you do not have to be an attorney, right? Uh And so there's positives and negatives to whether or not someone's an attorney for a judge. Some people on the positive say they have a more thorough understanding of the law. And then on the negative, some people say that they may be more likely to favor, you know, either the defendants or the prosecution, depending on the kind of law they did. Were they a district attorney or were they, you know, a defense attorney, that kind of thing. So there you can say, oh, there's that, there could be that kind of bias on the negative, right? But also the most common profession that you see taking the seat, taking the bench here in Pennsylvania for magistrates are retired police officers. And Mm -hmm. which 
some can say the same. Oh, they feel that they have a good understanding of the law or the chain of custody for evidence and that kind of thing, or traffic law, because we do hear all traffic law cases. But on the negative, people could say that there's an inherent bias there to rule in favor of the officers and the prosecution. Mm-hmm. I am proud to say that I am neither and that the work that I did in law enforcement was independent investigative work for the state on abuse and neglect. So while I have a breadth of trial experience from civil, family, even, you know, first degree felony court, it was never for one side or the other, really. It wasn't because I was there for a client. It wasn't there because I was a rank-and-file officer. I was there because I was advocating for the needs of children that were involved in that situation, whether they were a victim and a less victim, stand by for something greater. You know, we dealt with a lot of death, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that we maintain a very distinct air of equity in my opinion, and a perspective that doesn't lend towards one side or the other. We need an impartial judge. Right. And as far as your knowledge of the law, I mean, you, you mentioned just now that you you have quite a bit of it from your prior work experience. I think you also do have to take some type of test, right, to certify that you are knowledgeable enough to decide cases. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, and that's a yes on both counts. Yes, I have a thorough understanding of the law. For again, for almost 10 years, I worked with enforcement, but I did interviews for the prosecution, interviews for defendants. I did disclosures. I was in charge of the you know, chain of custody for evidence, which is something the magistrates do. We are also tasked with, and this is one of the most important things we're tasked with, which is deciding whether or not the state has met its burden of proof, i.e., was that traffic stop legal to begin with? Was that encounter with the officer legal to begin with? Which is why some people can see, you know, having retired officers as magistrates as a conflict of interest, especially if they come from a department over which they be ruling. I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying that it is very commonly seen to be. And then in terms of qualifications from the state, we do go to a four-week course. It is an 8.30 to 4.30 course, Monday through Friday, four weeks straight, and then there is a test at the end of it. I'm not really worried about the course. I'm familiar with all the materials from my prior work and also from my degrees from college. I graduated with a dual bachelor's in science degree in forensics, and anthropology. I have a certification in criminology, which is a certificate that was more than a major, but less than a third degree. I minored in site, and then I have additional postgraduate work and certifications in domestic violence, which is relevant because we do issue protection from abuse orders, substance abuse, mental illness, family planning, family counseling, all, all kinds of Things that could take a whole nother show. Let's just say I right. like school. <laughs> okay? I like school, and there's no test I haven't met that I haven't passed. So I like to learn. That's a good thing. I mean, you never, you, well, in my opinion, I, I, th- I think it's an excellent thing. And <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm a giant nerd. Absolute <laughs> giant nerd. Star Trek actually is my entire inspiration for politics. I don't know if I should say that really? out loud, but it is. I wanna, um, you have to yeah, explain I, that, I think. <laughs> how does how does Star <laughs> Trek, I mean, and I'm not a Trekkie, full disclosure, but I, I want to understand that connection there. Well, if you want to understand that connection, you have to look at The Next Generation. It's really, and The Next Generation is really about committee meetings in space and diplomatic relations in space. How can we be better and how can we not judge? How can we recognize our own biases, right? Which is similar. We hear a lot right now about white privilege and recognizing your white privilege. Well, if you turn on an episode of Star Trek, half of it is 
them encountering a new species and dealing with their privilege of being, you know, the Federation. And how do we incorporate this new species without being judgmental? How do we learn to talk with them? How do we learn to see what their needs are? How can we compromise between what, what we want and they want to get with something we both need? And in the end, it's all about being your best human. How can you be your best self? Mm. So. I'll have to go back and, really? and watch a couple episodes because I, I didn't pick up on that before, but uh, that was a few years ago too. So I'm sure it's on YouTube. <laughs> but but getting back to what you what you were saying about the conflict of interest, I think that's a fascinating area just because it is... I mean, how do you how do you determine that? I mean, I wonder if the state, you know, as far as like train, you know, there really is no training per se for that. I mean, and I know courtrooms where, like you said, it is a former police officer, and you know, if they recuse themselves every time a, a former colleague of them of of theirs from their former police department <laughs> brought a case before them, they'd hardly ever be in court at all. So exactly. Well, you know, we can't really, it, it's going to have to be something that the voters are going to have to decide. Again, I can only say, Hey, you know, this is, you know, can be, these are the benefits of having it, you know, because clearly if you have, you know, a traffic cop that sits as a magistrate, they have a thorough understanding. I'd sure hope of traffic law, right? So that could be a benefit, but that, possibility of a, of a conflict of interest or a bias, that's, that's on the other side. So I can't say what is or what isn't. I know how I would vote and how I wouldn't, but that's pretty clear from my running. Right. <laughs> it's up to the voters to decide that. But we had a similar issue, and we had a similar issue right in Bethlehem not too long ago, and it would have covered Lehigh County as well. It was two years ago, the chief of police at the time, Chief Deluzio, his wife was running to be DA in Lehigh County, and that caused quite an uproar. Now, Chief Delugia and I had always gotten along well. However, there's an inherent balance of power, right? Like we talked about before, there's a balance of power and checks and balances. That's what they talk about. And for a magistrate, it's to say, hey, you know, was this traffic stop legal? Was this encounter with the police legal to begin with? Did they meet their burden of proof, right? that the magistrate is checking balance to the officer, right? Mm -hmm. In the same manner, the district attorney is a check and balance for the chief of police because essentially what happens is the chief of police enforces the laws that the DA decides the priorities that the DA is going to prosecute, right? And if the police officers make an arrest, the DA decides whether or not they're going to go through mm-hmm. and whether or not they're going to prosecute that case. You know, because, you know, sometimes you get arrested and let go. Sometimes you get arrested and there's charges filed. We hear that term a lot, charges filed. And it's the DA that essentially determines whether or not charges will be filed. Right. And people were in a bit of a stir because the DA was going to be married if she won to the chief of police who was chief in a county in the county in which she was going to be the right i do remember that yeah it's very you know uh, some people see it as, as something very similar right i can see that and that's something that that it's almost like a perversion of the balance of power you know, and not to say that anybody would, but but the appearance of it, that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. You know, and it didn't it didn't really go over well uh, right. with the voters. <laughs> There's a lot of quirky things in Pennsylvania. I, I don't know about other states, but like I remember, like when I found out that <laughs> we're not a state. That's why we're not <laughs> right, a state. That's we true. are a commonwealth. It's perfectly legal, like for a married couple to both serve on a town council or board of supervisors, which you know just seems a little bit like not such a great idea. Maybe I don't know. Like, well, it's hard because here you go, right? They're individual. Mm-hmm. And then where do you lose your individuality? I'm not saying it's 
you know, again, I'm not here to make a judgment on right. that. <laughs> it just seems like maybe it's not ideal, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can definitely see why it would make people uncomfortable in terms of keeping, you know, the balance of power the way it was intended. Because right. honestly, back when our Constitution, even our state Constitution was written, Let's be real here for a second. There was no spouses serving together because A, same sex couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And B, women couldn't hold positions of, of elected office. You couldn't even have credit cards from 1973. <laughs> that I didn't like, know. 1973. Oh yeah. 1973 was the first time a woman could get a credit card without her husband's permission. Like 50 years after so, they won the right to vote? That's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously, look it up. It's crazy. It's crazy how few rights women have had until recently. And so then that brings up some of those things because if we had had same sex unions when the Constitution was written, maybe that's something they would have put in there. If women had the opportunity and ability to hold elected positions, Maybe that's something they would have put in there. But given that we were essentially property at the time that that these rules were written, it's not so crazy to think that we have what we have right now. Right. And I did want to mention, too, as far as your life, your life story, you are serving as the first openly gay county commissioner in, in Lehigh County history. And obviously, that affects your worldview, or however you want to term it. <laughs> Are you accusing me of seeing the world through rainbow-colored glasses? <laughs> well, that's not always a bad thing. But obviously, there have been issues for gay Americans with inequality. I mean, it's only been about five years since same-sex couples won the right to marry in the entire country. That's like the blink of an eye in in terms of history. I'm sure you are well aware of inequality <laughs> and 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 how it can damage a person. What are your thoughts about that as far as like how you will judge and how your own life story might make you more sensitive to issues of inequality? Well, I do think it help to have someone that doesn't come from a complete place of privilege when we're looking at who we want as our elected officials and then especially who we want as our judges, right? Because, yes, you have to understand the law, but you need to understand your community, especially as a magistrate. We need local solutions to local problems. And in terms of, you know, being a lesbian and being the first out lesbian, um, as, a, as a commissioner, first out, almost anything, you know, in Lehigh County or, or anywhere, even really close to it, it keeps me in touch not only with the inequalities that we see, but the covert inequalities that we don't always see. You know, because in a lot of ways, I am very privileged because I'm an invisible minority, right? Like, I'm a Jew, but you're not going to look at me and think I'm Jewish. I'm a lesbian, and because I'm very feminine, people are often quite surprised when they find out that I am. And what that's let me do is see how other people of my community, whether Jewish or or lesbian, are treated when they don't think someone that's a member of that community is looking. Right. And that can be a little bit hard. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but it gives me an opportunity to break down that barrier as well. Like when my kids started at Calypso, I was class mom. Mm-hmm. Immediately. Kindergarten all the way up. Class mom, baking cupcakes, parties. And then when I ran for election, you know, my palm card, my wife. Everybody kind of thought we were like sisters living together, raising kids, I guess, or aunts, or, or whatever. They did not <laughs> think we were lesbians. Your husband's always crazy. out of town for some reason. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like a big uproar of PTC. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. And then everyone kind of had to resolve, like, 
but this is the, the woman that's been reading to my kid for four years. This is the woman that comes up to the playground and all the kids are like, oh, Miss Amy, and they all come over. And, and she so makes a really good cupcake. Some, some dialogue and discourse. Yeah. I liked it. And I think that it'll be important because we, people that have gone through their own discrimination, right? And even, even as feminine as, as I can come off and, and, and how much I feel that we've grown as a society, for instance, I'll be very honest. When I bought my house here in Fountain Hill, I did not let on. I had my, my, I was a realtor, I'm a realtor, but my wife was on the mortgage all by herself because hmm. we didn't want anything to mess up this, this sale. Right. We were afraid. Right. And, you know, for, for as far as we've come, there's stuff that still exists, but we've been discriminated against before. You know, there was a time when I was younger, I shaved my head for St. Baldrick, and so then clearly I didn't look quite as feminine as I do now. <laughs> <laughs> that was a rough period, because that did not go over well with strangers. Mm-hmm. And that was a cost of a lot. You know, called, it was the only time I've ever been called a dyke in my life, in a negative way. Negative right. Way. <laughs> but I think it's important when you see that. You know, I remember when I was, you know, a kid, and I grew up in an area that wasn't very diverse, and mm-hmm. that started to become diverse. So I didn't have any friends that didn't really look like me until I was in middle school. And so when I was in middle school, I remember like I would go to the mall. I would go to the mall, go to the same stores for years, right? You know, back in the day when your parents would just drop you off and let you go for four hours. Yeah. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> I remember but those days. I remember I had a friend beautiful African-American girl. We were friends. We went to the mall together. It was the first time we went to the mall together. And I'll never forget, went in all the same stores, right? Complete, and watched her be treated completely differently. Mm-hmm. And I was, so, I, she got followed around. Asked, everybody kept asking her every, every five minutes if she needed something, this, that. And I remember after we left the third store, I asked her, I was like, what, what's going on? And she was like, I'm black. I was like, okay, but I don't, what do you mean? And she had to explain to me because I was ignorant. I hadn't known. Right. And it was just, it was just crazy to see how different that she was treated just because of how she appeared. Right. And, and I think it's important that we have that, especially when we're talking about people in positions of power, any, any positions of power that we have people that understand that racism and bigotry are real. Right. You also, highlight on your website, your campaign site, where you talk about providing better access to bilingual support within the court system. Is that something that you think that that is lacking right now? And obviously, if if, if it is, I can see how that could disadvantage somebody whose first language is in English. Yeah. So while we're very good in the county, everybody can, you know, get a translator if they want a translator when they show up. One of the issues that I've seen now, now I've taken the last few months and I'm going around to everybody else's little magistrate courtroom and, and I'm, I'm working with some judges to see what they do. And what's important that I, I think is very key for my district because Fountain Hill in and of itself got a lot of refugees after Katrina. A lot of people resettled here. We have a very high amount of Spanish and Hispanic first language speakers mm-hmm. in Fountain Hill. Is that one of your first language is in English, and you're coming to the office because you want to file a complaint against them? What if you're a tenant and you're trying, you know, who who happens to just be, you know, Spanish first language, and you you want to find out how to file against your tenant? You know, it's it's not enough to just provide services to defendants, but we also, in a court that handles things like landlord-tenant, we also need to make sure that staff can help you right. and serve you, because you have just as much right as anyone else. And when we talk about a district that does have such a heavy amount of Spanish-speaking people, I think it's absolutely important that we do have someone on full-time staff at the, the courthouse that understands and has a thorough understanding of legal language in in Spanish. Because there's more things. You could have a question before, even if you're a defendant, you could have a question while you're waiting outside. It should be more than just having a translator in the courtroom because 
let's be honest, no matter why you're in court, whether you're you're on the prosecution side, whether you're on the defense, you're gonna be nervous. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You're gonna be scared. It's not pleasant. And so I think you should be able to talk to someone in a humane, kind way in your first language. Right. And so that's something that I wanna bring to that court. I want to make sure that we have a full-time bilingual. We have full-time bilingual staff. I would hope it's it's a priority for any any district with any number of speakers of Spanish or other languages. Certainly, we do live in a very diverse district, but even some that aren't as diverse probably could use some uh, some support in that area. You know, I mean, we're only becoming more diverse as a municipality, county, state, country. So as far as getting back to what we talked about earlier, I'm going to get on my soapbox here a little bit, you know, to see just more, more unanimity as far as the district courts go. And I mean, speaking from personal experience as a journalist, you know, I go into district courts, or I did before COVID, you know, to look at things like criminal affidavits. And it's like the procedures are totally different from one court to another, even within the same county. <laughs> You know, some roll out the red carpet for you and others, you know, you have to fight tooth and nail to look at the same documents. You know, that really isn't a great recipe for accountability, certainly not transparent. I don't know why we ended up with that system, but, you know, it doesn't seem like it, it serves anybody particularly well. No, it's... It... You know, there's, again, there's a lot of autonomy, but that is why I've gone out of my way to spend the last few months getting to know how these magistrate courts function, not just in Lehigh County, but also Lansing County, other counties throughout the state. I'm a firm believer, and if you think you know everything, you clearly don't know anything. <laughs> so <laughs> I figure I, I've got nothing to lose by going around to all these other magistrate courts because I might learn something, might learn something good to bring back to my home. And that could happen in the next court over with Judge Diamore. It could happen over in Norco with another judge. Mm -hmm. It could happen out in Luzerne County. Who knows? Right. But the point is, we do do it differently. And every court varies. And so I think it's important we do our, our research before we're seated so that we understand and can bring back the best of what's available to us. And be nice to your members of the press. <laughs> Don't bite their head off. <laughs> no, we're nice too. I mean, we, uh, all joking aside, I think that's that's really important. And, and I wanna thank you for taking the time to join us on this episode. Before we wrap up, I wanted to have you tell listeners like how they can learn more about you, connect with you online, and, and so forth. Well, sure. Well, thank you very much for that opportunity and for having me on today. If you want to learn about me or my campaign, please go to www.amyzanelli.com. That's A-M-Y-Z as in zebra, A-N-E-L-L-I. You can also find me at Amy Zanelli, the number four judge, on Facebook, where you can just knock on the door stand back a little bit and have a conversation. <laughs> Everybody in the Hill knows where I live. They know where to find me. I've always been accessible. You can email me at amyzanelli at gmail.com. I'm pretty easy to find if you want to find me. That's and true. I might not have all the answers to your questions, but I promise that I will do my best to find them and be honest with you if I don't have the answer that you want. That's that's all we can ask for in this day and age. Be accessible and, you know, when you don't know the answer, say you don't know, but you'll try to find out. I think that's that's laudable. So thank you again for joining us, Amy. And uh, we will be following this race, of course, on SockAndSource.com, reporting on it. And we'll see you in the hill, maybe at Wawa or someplace. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Have a lovely night. Thank Stay you. Stay warm, everyone. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? 
Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sockandsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Saucon Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Every night, he climbs the tower, sees your face on every dollar.